Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. Think about God being a father. God has children uh, that he loves and provides for. He manages his household uh, with strength and kindness. God the Father has one begotten son. And yet through the sacrifice of that son, God has adopted many orphans to be his sons and daughters. God's love for his children is big. He gives them clear family expectations for the good of the entire household. The father adopts orphans and teaches them how to behave and honor him as his children. He lovingly gives them everything that they need uh, to represent the family well Namely, His Holy Spirit, He wants all of His beautiful children, um, all of His beautiful children to experience the goodness and uh, the joy of knowing and obeying Him. Now, in, in my family, when uh, the, the more that the gospel is applied uh, in our home, the sweeter our family life is. It, it, things just tend to, to, to go a little better. Whenever self-regard replaces the gospel... Let me tell you, it's not pretty in the shirk home. It's not pretty in the shirk home. It can get very ugly. And it's the same in the household of God, in the church. Our focus today is threefold. Number one, the gospel. Number two, the household of God. And number three, how the children of God must apply the gospel in God's household. See, the gospel shapes the family life of God's family. As the gospel is enjoyed and applied, God's family thrives. And as God's precious children, his adopted children, seek to apply the gospel in the household of God, they must understand something very important, that what they must do in the household of God flows out of what Christ has done for them as the children of God. In other words, God adopts us, Jesus saves us, and the Holy Spirit helps us live out our true identity as children of God. Christ has made us who we are and strengthens us to actually be who we are. So for each of us to flourish As God's children in God's house, we must live and breathe by God's sovereign grace. So first, the gospel, the gospel. Right at the beginning of 1 Timothy, Paul said, grace, peace, uh, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He proceeded to explain that God's law is laid down for unrighteous people who do things contrary to sound biblical doctrine. Paul showed that God's love exposes sin, or his law rather, exposes sin and reveals humanity's desperate need of a savior, someone to come and rescue them. Paul explained that he had received God's Mercy and that the grace of the Lord overflowed for him with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Then Paul gave one of the best summaries of the gospel uh, in Scripture. Very simple to the point. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul added, but I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, and he means the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. 
when Christ saves a person, He also helps that person apply the gospel in life. And therein, Christ is glorified and others see His glory in them. Paul then referred to God as God our Savior and states, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Christ is the payment which frees sinners from the clutches of sin and death and the wrath and justice of God. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. My friends, Christ is the gospel. How then should someone respond to Him? Turn from sin, trust in Christ alone, and tread a new path by the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. Union with Christ by faith is essential to proper conduct in God's household. Union with Christ. So our starting point is the gospel which transforms everything about us. Absolutely everything. Who are we in Christ? Who are we, really? Well, it's important to know that. Because our behavior flows out of our identity. Our behavior flows out of our identity. The household of God. The household of God. What identity does the gospel give us? Who are we in Christ? Our identity in Christ is the ground of our obedience to Christ. Notice the familial language in 1 Timothy. Words like child and God the Father, and household, and brothers, and sisters. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 are critical to understanding the entire book of 1 Timothy. It says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Understand, God's household is the church of the living God, composed of everyone whom God has adopted into His family by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God's household is composed of every redeemed child living for the honor and glory of their Father. The church is a close-knit family, whose bond is Christ. It's Christ. There is a father. There is a begotten eldest brother, and there are many adopted brothers and sisters. But you see, not everyone belongs to the family of God. Apart from union with Christ, people are still orphans, still fatherless, still slaves of sin, still enemies of God, even if they go to church. But believers are children of God, set apart from unbelievers. They are distinct. They are different. Listen carefully to how the Apostle John put it in in John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, this is really, really important for you to understand. The true children of God 
received Christ along with the legal right to be called children of God, to belong to God as children. That receiving is entirely grace. Grace. It's a gift, including the belief. Those who received Christ are not God's children because of bloodline. They're not God's children because of the will of the flesh. They're not God's children because of the will of man. In other words, they are not the children of God because of ethnicity or any free choice that they made. They are children of God because they are born of God. As John said, born by God's sovereign grace alone. He makes sons and daughters. God not only adopts, but he gives new birth into his family. Are you a child of God because you willed it? Are you a child of God because you chose to be? No. John said, you're a child of God because you were born of God. Which means God alone regenerates or God alone gives life. God as Father, just that title, God as Father, means God sovereignly enlivens, gives birth to, and gathers His family together. Listen to the profoundness of Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Who are we in Christ? Who are we? We are sons and daughters of God. Siblings living beneath the love of our Father. We have received grace. We have been given the spirit of adoption. God is our Abba Father. The Spirit testifies to our marvelous identity. We are also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. God has lovingly done this. He has graciously given us this identity within his household. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. 1 John 3, 1. The household of God is filled with people who should not be there, but who are there because God wants them there and God has placed them there. And because of the Father's grace, His children, oh, His children are so grateful to the Father that they live to apply the gospel to everything for the honor and glory of their Father whom they love. I want you to remember this. The grace that made you a child of God is the same grace which motivates you to act like a child of God. So if we are confident in who God has made us in Christ, then it absolutely will make a difference in how we act in the household of God, which brings us to the third point. As loved children of God who desire to please their Father, how must we apply the gospel in God's household? How do we live as children of God? 
Knowing who we are in Christ, how should the gospel inform how we treat one another? Well, look at verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Paul is instructing Timothy uh, in how to correct people within the household of God. Not an easy thing to do, but he was telling him how to do it. Every child of God acts up. They do things they shouldn't do. They act in a way against what they are in Christ. And they need to be corrected. Correction is good for us. Do you know that correction is good for you? For someone to get close enough to correct how you're living? Do you know that's good? We need that. I need that. You need that. But not in the way that Paul prohibited in verse 1. The word epiplexes or rebuke only appears here in the New Testament. One time. Now, you'll see rebuke, the English word, in other places, but this is the only place that this one Greek word is used. It's a word describing a severe and angry rebuke. A severe and angry rebuke, the kind of, the kind of rebuke that just comes out in the heat of the moment. Have you been there? Well, instead of that kind of rebuke, Timothy was to encourage, to exhort those who needed to be corrected. It should be obvious to us that sin cannot be ignored and dismissed in God's household. It can't be. God wants us to deal with it, to face it and to deal with it, but it must be dealt with in God's way, not harshly, not cruelly, not callously, but directly Gently and earnestly. Encouragement summons people to joyfully obey God. If an older man needed to be corrected, Timothy needed to approach that older man respectfully as a son would approach his father. If a younger man needed to be corrected, Timothy needed to approach him as an equal, as a brother. An older woman, considerately like a mother. A younger woman as an equal, as a sister. Paul, Paul uses familial terms here, words that make a point about how the gospel is lovingly and respectfully applied to the family of God. Now, why attach purity to younger women? Well, I, I think the point should be quite obvious. Aside from wives, there must not even be a hint of sensuality or sexual impurity between a pastor or men and the women in the church. Men, men and women, and I think sometimes this can get um, skewed in our minds, that men and women who are not married can have uh, legitimate and close relationships um, without being married. However, it must be like a brother uh, and sister with certain appropriate boundaries. That makes sense. There have to be boundaries there. Sibling affection is essential to God's household. And, and as a pastor, I've tried with you ladies to, to um, put appropriate boundaries there. And one of the things that I do, if you think this is weird, I attach Christina on my emails to women. I think that gives a built-in accountability. I, I, I try to do things that, that keep, um, but yet I try to be clo close to you, that you know that your pastor loves you, as is appropriate. Okay, I, I try to, to have a good balance of that, but it's not always easy. But we want to err on the side of purity. Um, some people got on our vice president about that, but I think he's using wise, uh, wise 
counsel there and biblical things to, to put that in place. In verse 3, Paul began to explain how the gospel is applied to caring for widows in the church. And he gave boundaries to caring for widows in order to protect the church and in order to ensure that God's family is, is well. That it, that it works right. Verses 3 through 8 are more compelling for us when we read about the widows when we consider how deeply God loves and cares for widows. And we see this throughout Scripture. Widows is a theme. God loves widows. In Psalm 68, verse 5, this is awesome. God is called protector of widows. I love that. That is awesome. Uh, Psalm 146, verse 9 says, The Lord upholds the widow. In Isaiah 1.17, God tells Israel to plead the widow's cause. Exodus 22, verses 22 through 24 is an extreme example of how deeply God loves widows. I think this drives it home. This is what God said. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's intense. That is intense. God loves widows. How about we go ahead and love the widow? Even as Jesus was bleeding and dying on the cross, he made provisions for his dear widowed mother Mary. He said to her regarding the apostle John, I believe, woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, behold your mother. And then we find out that from that hour on, the disciple took her to his own home. How tender of Jesus to care for widows. God loves widows. And he orders his children to care for them. In fact, James 1.27 tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father includes visiting widows in their affliction. As children of God who are lavishly provided for by our Father, how could we not provide for our widows' sisters in Christ? It is our joy to love them well. It is our privilege to love them well. Now, there were probably quite a few widows in the Ephesian church, and Paul wrote in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. And honor is the same word as honor your father and your mother. But even more than showing respect, here honor includes financial assistance. Paul said truly widows. Truly widows. Look, you're either a widow or you're not, right? You're either a widow or you're not. What does Paul mean by truly widows? Well, he was clarifying something important. There are guidelines for a church's financial support. Not every widow should be financially supported by the church, which might come as a surprise to you. And as I was studying this, I don't think this was clear to me before. I was really digging in here. So let's look at the first category of widows in verse 4. This is a widow who has children and or grandchildren. So let me read it. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, verse 4 is a bit confusing. When Paul said, let them first learn, is he referring to the widows or to the children and the grandchildren? 
Uh, that, that can seem a little odd in our English. Well, one clue is that widow is singular, and then the rest of the verse is plural, uh, which matches the plural terms children and grandchildren. And making a return to their parents seems most fitting for children to do that. So here is what Paul is saying. When a widow has children or, uh, and grandchildren, those children need to learn how to show godliness to their household, and mother was likely in their household, living with them, uh, or at least in close proximity. Godliness is the word eusebeo, meaning fulfilling one's religious duties, so, so if you think here and follow the trajectory, that translates in children worship and serve God by providing for their widowed mother. It is their gospel duty before God. Paul strengthened that thought by adding, and to make some return to their parents. Return is payback. Make some payback, children. And think, if you're a parent, think of all of the things that you have invested and given your children. I mean, the massive investment that you just pour out love. Kids, you should look at your parents and bow in respect. Not in worship, but in respect. I mean, kiss their feet for what they do for you. Parents give a lot. So when parents get old and need help, their kids need to provide for them first. The word parents seems to suggest a broader application than just widows. That could apply to father. In those days, women outlasted men, and you know what? They still do. Average age expectancy in the United States of America for a guy is 76 years old, and for a girl, it's 81. They have us by five years, ladies, or guys. We got to do something. Alter our ways. Stop eating Twinkies so much or something. I don't know what. I, too much meat or something. I don't know, but... Now, men in the first century could find work a whole lot easier than women could. And widows were vulnerable. They were vulnerable physically. They were vulnerable economically. Men were providers, and women could not gain employment easily, especially in their old age. But if an old man was a widower and couldn't provide, I think the same principle would apply here. So step one in providing for widows is their children and grandchildren. The children owe it to their parents. This is a good application of the gospel, and this pleases God. So widows with children do not qualify as true widows. Real quick, how is the gospel leading you to care for your aging parents? Caring for them is directly connected to your faith in Christ. You can't separate those things. Uh, Your father is pleased when you care for your parents. In verse 5, Paul clarifies a lot. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So three qualifiers for true widows. Number one, a true widow is left all alone. Number two, a true widow sets her hope on God. And number three, a true widow pleads consistently with God to provide for her. So first, a true widow is left all alone. She doesn't have a husband, she doesn't have children or relatives to come to her aid, or at least ones who are coming to her aid. So how will she support herself? What if she is sick and bedridden? Uh, What if she doesn't have the know-how on certain things? R. Kent Hughes, he writes this, quote, Today the application of this passage should be wider 
because modern American culture has produced a category of women virtually unknown in the first century. Christian women and children who have been abandoned by their spouses and left without family support. Godly single mothers are a new class of widow, and those without family and resources are the church's sacred responsibility. We need to think about this as a church. We really do. We can't miss this one. Uh, How is the gospel leading us as a church to care for abandoned Christian women and their children and single Christian single parents? Now, there are unique situations that present, uh, that may now or in the future present themselves to our church. And we need to be ready to respond. We need to be lined up so that we can do this well for the glory of God, to put the gospel on display. The word widow is a woman left alone, but the word doesn't necessarily explain how that woman was left alone. Could be death, abandonment, divorce, incarceration. Is our church equipped to respond to these sisters and brothers effectively? Well, we need to be. God is calling us to respond. And just, just, just to add here, I think the deacons are doing some good work behind the scenes that many of you have no idea is going on that is moving us in this direction to be more faithful. Praise God and pray for your deacons. Second, a true widow sets her hope in God. God is her anchor. She is a believer. She's a Christian. She is a woman who looks to Christ for everything. She expects God to provide for her. She looks primarily to God as her protector and her provider. Third, a true widow pleads consistently with God to provide for her. She is a woman of prayer. She knows her needs. She knows God's love for her. She is confident in her provision, in his provision. So she pleads day and night for him to provide and to care for her. You know, though a true widow may not have a blood family that is around her caring for her, she has a family. She has a family. She has a father that loves her more than she knows. And she has brothers and sisters who love. And so she has this family who really cares for her and who is very interested in meeting her needs. She knows that they're going to come through. So a true widow is not all alone. She sets her hope on God and prays night and day. She is alone in the sense that her Family's kids are just gone. She doesn't have anybody around her, so the church needs to come through. So this leaves some questions to flesh out, uh, unanswered questions of how to care, an example, how to care for widows outside of our church. I mean, what does that look like? Well, that's another discussion, but understand that here Paul is specifically talking about how to care for true widows within the household of God. Verse 6 gives another category of widow, and I'll warn you ahead of time, this one's tough. This one's tough. For various reasons, for the eternal destination of the widow herself. Verse 6 says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Well, this is not the godly widow just described in verse 5. This widow in the church is ungodly. She's not walking with God. She's physically alive, but she's spiritually dead. And hopefully, it doesn't surprise you to hear that there are spiritually dead people in local churches. They don't know God. They are not saved. They they are not part of the family of God. 
These widows live self-indulgent lives. They feed their fleshly desires and live lavishly. Their focus is not on God. It's not on prayer. It's not on living a godly life in the household of God, but it is instead put on themselves. They are focused on themselves. This widow is a dead woman walking. And I need to put this bluntly. Those widows should not get any financial help from the church. And it takes wisdom and it takes godliness to apply this, but the church will love those ungodly widows best by allowing them to feel the consequences of their sin. This is called tough love, but perhaps it will expose for them their need of God. Now, if you're hearing that and thinking, Jonathan, I think that's too strong, I want you to consider Paul's command again in verse 3. Honor widows who are what? Truly widows. The true widows are the ones you're supposed to honor. Not this other category. The ungodly and self-indulgent widows don't meet the criteria of a true widow. Therefore, they should not be honored as Paul describes honor in this passage. And I'll just say this for clarity. There are other ways to love a self-indulgent widow. Now, on to verse 7, Paul emphasized the point, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. I take that to mean children and grandchildren are commanded to care for their parents, especially those in the household of God. This is for pastors, and this is for the entire church. They are bound by the gospel to do it. If they are to be irreproachable, above reproach, without reproach, They need to obey God in this area. They need to support their parents. It's God's command for them. The application may not be easy. The application may not always be clear that we know exactly how to do that in every situation, but it's right and it's good and it's pleasing to God, and therefore it is for us the pathway of greater joy and pleasure in God. I read a a moving story about Joanne Shetler. Uh, which beautifully illustrates the heart of these verses. I want to share it with you. This, th- this shows us how the gospel is to be played out. Uh, Joanne Shetler was a missionary to the Balangao uh, people of the Philippines. Their village was literally a two-day's hike from the nearest road. And she labored there for, I think, a long time uh, in the gospel among the Balangao people, and many of them got saved. I mean, God did a work of the Spirit in this place, and interestingly, 1 Timothy uh, played a powerful role in the transformation of the people, and Joanne told how 1 Timothy changed things. Listen to how she writes this. We got to the end of the book where it talks about widows in need and the church's responsibility to take over for widows who have no other source of livelihood. About the same time, Forson, one of those old women the spirits had earlier tried to kill, lost her husband. And she was a widow indeed. All of her children had long been dead. She had no relatives in Balangao. In fact, she was not even a Balangao. And in Balangao culture, there is no mercy if there is no blood connection. She would have been left alone in her house with or without food until she died. One of the men who had helped me in translation, translate, translating the Bible into the Balangao dialect, went over and took Forson by the hand with her one little pot, brought her over and said, you will be like my mother and you will live with us in our home. And that old woman is there today even though she is old and sickly. That is the gospel in action. 
Listen, the goodness of the household of God stems from the gospel at work in the household of God, producing radical love, radical sacrifice. I care about you, and so I'm going to do something to bless you, do something radical, because you belong to God, and I do too, and I will respond, because we're kin, we're family. We'll end with uh, verse 8, which is a, a great challenge for us. Paul said, but if anyone does not provide for his own, is actually what it says literally, or his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This verse has massive implications. If a Christian refuses to provide for his or her relatives, especially those of their own household, those under their roof, and provide means having regard for or taking care of, okay, their negligence invalidates their profession of faith. There are people who want to profess faith in Christ, they want to assume that they're Christians, but don't want to actually obey Christ. And the principle is that their willful disobedience invalidates their profession of faith. It makes it null and void. That's not real because you're not living consistently with the profession that you make. Put the money where the mouth is. We've got to see this. So if the gospel does not move a professing Christian to provide for their family, they are denying the Christian faith, even if their mouth professes Christ. And their negligence in supporting their family proves them worse than unbelievers who actually do provide for their families. Countless unbelievers, think about this, countless unbelievers openly reject Jesus Christ, but then they live inconsistently with that when they provide for their loved ones. Okay? But when a Christian who professes Christ refuses to provide for their family, it is horrible hypocrisy. Totally inconsistent with what they are saying. And so it invalidates their faith. Um, they deny the gospel by their negligence. Failing to live out the gospel in this way is a denial of the faith, no matter what the mouth says. If you wonder, is that really true? Titus 1.6 confirms the same thing. It says this, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now that's direct, folks, but that's true. A profession of Christ must always be accompanied by obedience to Christ. God takes this very seriously, and what I'm trying to do, I'm trying to show that the gospel makes us true children of God, and true children of God apply the gospel to life, including the care of their families and those within the household of God. This is how we apply it. The gospel sets the pace of life. If you are truly a child of God, then you will work to provide for your family members, especially those under your roof. Why? Because you are so grateful that God has cared for you. You take his care. And so you just want to please your father out of great gratitude by loving your family, both blood and spiritual. Now, I know this doesn't answer all of the tough questions that arise when thinking through how to provide for others. I know that I'm not addressing everything. What about enabling loved ones? That's tough. What if your financial assistance is abused? 
That's tough. Should you give thousands of dollars to your bankrupt, bankrupt, unbelieving fourth cousin Jerry? I mean, I, what if you're dirt poor and you have nothing to give? So I think Paul, he makes the widow thing pretty easy. He tells us flat out. That's pretty clear. And I think when our heart is to love and obey our Father, He'll give us wisdom of how to do it in these other areas too. If we want to please God and love others like Jesus does, the Holy Spirit's going to come through for us and going to lead us exactly how to tenderly care for this. We're not going to do it perfectly, but we'll do it by God's grace for God's glory. We can do this. So here are a few things to think about. How is the Holy Spirit leading you to show love and respect to those older and those younger than you in our congregation? Is the gospel translating into you encouraging others in holiness? Is that, a, is that something that's happening for you? Are you providing for your aging parents by the love and strength that God provides you? Are we as a church providing for true widows? And maybe a good practice for us, maybe a starting point is to lovingly and with great tenderness and respect Talk to the widows. Ask our widows. See if their needs are being met. Ask them. Let's, be, let, let's love one another by at least knowing one another. Ask them how you can love them and serve them and then follow through on that. And there's an appropriate way to do that that shows honor and respect. I'll end with this. I've been struck recently with going to some uh, fast-growing churches' websites and seeing how many young and beautiful people are plastered all over the place. And it's just, it's kind of dawning on me, that where are all the old people? Do they have old people in these churches? Old people are good. We need old people. If you're an old person, I'm glad you're here. We need you. We need you. I'll let you categorize whether you're old or not. But it's like, are old people important? Widows, old, young, whatever, are really precious to God and to us, to the church. And they're actually uh, really helpful to the health of our church, for us being like a good, healthy church. Widows are a part of that. And may we be a church that loves and provides for those widows really, really well. Where people maybe in our area know, you know what, if you're a widow and you need help, I'll tell you exactly where to go. Go to Jerusalem Church. Because these people get it. They know what God is asking them to do. So widows are a great help to our greater holiness. They're a great help. So let us be a church that shows widows God's love as we apply the gospel for their joy, for their well-being. And you know what? For our joy and our well-being as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for precious, true, godly widows. What an enormous encouragement they are to us. In their affliction, they are praying. In their affliction, they are trusting you. They wrestle so deeply, but we see in their lives, God, their testimony of your faithfulness and your grace. And so, God, I pray that you help Jerusalem Church own this, that we wouldn't just say, oh, that's nice. That was good for Ephesus. No, that's good for Mannheim. And I pray that we can do it for your glory. God, help us in these things. Help us to know how to, to appropriately uncover needs and then meet those needs 
in ways that show honor and love and respect. Help us to treat one another, older or younger, with great respect and love. Help us to admonish one another, to rebuke one another, but in appropriate ways, encouragement, exhortation to greater faithfulness and holiness. We need your Holy Spirit, God. You've given us the gospel. We know our identity within the the household of God as children of God, and now we need to apply the gospel to our uh, body life here, to our household. So help us to be a healthy and godly and Christ-exalting church by how we we honor uh, true widows, God. All for your glory we pray. Amen.